0: Please be seated. Well, good morning. I want to give you all a break for a week, so you don't have to sit here and listen to me preach uh, this morning. We we have someone much better, much much more profound. Uh, the Reverend Wiss Hayes is with us, and so he's going to bless us today as he as he preaches for us. Uh, by way of introduction, uh, Wiss was here. Uh, serving at All Saints Church back in the old building over on Saratoga Lane from 1984 to 1989. He was the associate rector and youth pastor. I now wear those hats, so we we feel each other's pain. Uh, And he went on, after he left here, he went on to found Rock the World, which is a young adult uh, ministry organization, and he is currently the executive director of Rock the World uh, his wife, Mary, she is uh, the canon to Bishop John, Gerzy, John Guernsey, uh, the canon for clergy and congregation care. And she currently serves now as priest in charge over at Truro. So when Wiss has time, he comes over and visits. And so he's here with us today preaching. Wiss has been a great friend to many here at All Saints Church throughout the years, and particularly to me over the past two years. When I came on staff in 2020 as a youth pastor, uh, Wiss came alongside me and he was a mentor to me. He still is. He will call me and check in on me and pray with me and talk, uh, talk with me. Let me know how things are going. Ask me how things are going. Uh, share, um, I get to share with his team at times. We'll have conference calls. So he's been a great resource and a great friend uh, over these past two years. I look forward to many more years uh, working with him in various ways. So on that note, Wiss, would you please come and preach to us this morning? <laughs>
1: I see several familiar faces out here. There's even one member of that old youth group who's here. So, hi, Lisa. <laughs> um, and if she managed to make you irritated, that's entirely her fault. Um, no, <laughs> probably mine. <laughs> well, wow. yeah that's right. She was also an associate rector here for two years, and then <clears throat> moved over to Truro. but honestly, i did I was invited to do that too, and turned it down because what God was doing in the youth group here at that point was so amazing. I could not walk away from it. Yeah. um yeah, Susie, you were in on some of that too. You were one of the leaders, yeah so um. This morning, I want to um, tell you I've never had a harder time deciding which lection reading to do a sermon off of than I have today. Um, The lections um, about Martha and Mary um, are um, rather startling in the context of their original Setting culturally. Um, They're less startling to us today because, I mean, we're used to things like having uh, women in positions of influence and authority. We have a woman as vice president. We've had two other women run for that office before. Um, The speaker of the House is a woman. There are women who are uh, heads of major corporations. Um, So, Our understanding of women sort of being barefoot, pregnant, and back in the kitchen has expanded somewhat over the last 150 years in America. Um, uh, So it's harder to hear the shock In that story, last week's story, the story of the Good Samaritan, it is easy for us to still hear the shock, even though we don't have a negative opinion of Samaritans. It's easy for us to understand that if you've got this other group, this other ethnicity, this other nation that is somehow... uh, deplorable to us, that that might make it hard for us to hear that that person is the person who's the hero of the story about who your neighbor is. Oh yeah, and let's add to that list, he was also a Samaritan, which meant that the religion he was practicing was not Judaism. (laughs) The religion he was was practicing was this kind of amalgam of Judaism and other stuff, um, and so spiritually, ethnically, racially, he was somebody who his hearers would have thought was lesser. And he turns out to be the hero, the example of what somebody loving your neighbor is like. Now, I don't think Jesus was trying to shock people just to shock them. I don't think that was it. But when the kingdom of God invades this world, there are going to be shock shockwaves uh, because the world is not the kingdom of God as it stands yet. Um, Yeah, that's going to require somebody else to come back and take charge. And he wasn't on the ballot last time, won't be next time either. So, Um, Yeah. So I decided that I was going to have to talk on Martha and Mary because the Colossians passage has this sentence in it, which uh, was a source of absolute consternation to me when I was in seminary, and I discovered this particular phrase. Um, Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. When I came across that, it sent me into a two or three week tailspin because I thought it sounded like it was a doctrine of the insufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And I finally figured out what the that was saying in context. And it turned into one of my major breakthroughs spiritually. I would love to share that with you. But to make the case, I need a full hour of Christian Ed or Lenten series or something. So you guys will have to have me back. Um, <laughs> you know, or it depends on what I do with the rest of this time, I guess. Um, but I will say what the bottom line is, it's not a question of Christ's sacrifice being inadequate. It's a question of his sacrifice continuing in and through us. Uh, that, it, that Paul is saying he's participating in Christ's sacrifice and that that is an ongoing participation. I can make that case pretty airtight, but I can't do it in 20 minutes. So, to be continued. Well, um, the um, story of Martha and Mary then, this story is the second of two consecutive shockers. Um, now, we, uh, we need to hear that when Jesus is uh, doing these things that hit his hearers as shocking, he's aware that he's going to be pushing their boundaries. Um, but often we try to figure out how to niceify all of that. And even when there are things in it that are uh, going to expand our horizons. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, who was one of the inklings, I mean, uh, her it was a group of people in England that included Dorothy Sayers, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams. Uh, anyway, um, they would meet to talk about the Lord and about the faith and about how to present the faith. And anyway, uh, Dorothy Sayers wrote a series of radio plays called The Man Born to be King and in the introduction to that she says the following thing about why she's presented it the way she has. Not Herod, not Caiaphas, not Pilate, not Judas ever contrived to fasten upon Jesus Christ the reproach of being insipid. That final indignity was left for pious hands to inflict. To make of his story something that could neither startle, nor shock, nor terrify, nor excite, nor inspire a living soul, is to crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. I think we need to hear what the shock effect is here. And like I said, last week's story of a a good Samaritan sounds like an impossibility to their ears. Might have been shocking. But today, Jesus throws another punch. Um, and this time, it's about our deepest and most ancient divide, the divide between men and women. goes all the way back to Genesis 3. In Jesus' time, this divide was even worse. If you want to get a modern example of what that might look like, look at Afghanistan. Um, the way in which women are being marginalized, and uh, deprived of education, and so on. I'm sure you guys read the news as much as I do. And his time was a lot more like what Afghanistan is today, in terms of the division between the sexes. Um, His words and action in this story, then, where Mary comes and sits at his feet among the disciples, is just flatly outrageous. Now, the context in Luke's gospel, it looks like it's a non sequitur, but it isn't. The previous week, Jesus explains what love your neighbor as yourself means when the lawyer asks, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives that shocking example. But then uh, Luke arranges the text so that the next piece of the story is about what it means to love God with one's heart, soul, mind, and strength going back to the first and great commandment. We know from other places in the Bible that Jesus frequents their home, um, the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. We also, even though um, his name isn't mentioned, that Lazarus is there, but he's probably younger than the other two, which is why the household is Martha's household. She's probably the oldest sibling, and her parents are almost certainly dead. Uh, or she wouldn't be the head of household. Um, So the question is, why are they there? Well, it seems Martha invites them in, that her home actually seems to become a place over the course of the Gospels, where uh, where that home is a place where Jesus and his disciples can rest for ministry to the crowds, a kind of a home away from home for them. the story opens with Martha's hospitality and opens her home to Jesus and presumably his traveling band of disciples. They're honored guests and she welcomes them. Next in the story, we meet Martha's sister, Mary. It says she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. This is not somehow some kind of sentimental or romantic action. This is a common practice where you have a rabbi and his disciples. Disciples, sitting at the feet of the rabbi is a technical term. It's not just that that's what their seating position happened to be. That's how disciples of a rabbi would attend to his teaching. Um, And uh, if they were eating at a meal, they would recline at table. You see that being described in the uh, pictures of the Last Supper and so on. Um, the um, sitting at the Rabbi's feet was a way of the disciples honoring their Rabbi as well as signaling their receptivity to his teaching. So when Luke tells us that Mary sat at the Lord's feet, his earliest readers, if they understood the Jewish background of this at all, would have gasped. Only men were disciples, only men sat at the rabbi's feet. So Mary, in doing that, is acting scandalously. With this in mind, what do you think motivated her to go against such strong cultural taboos? What was it about Jesus that made her confident enough to stay in the room, to sit at his feet as a disciple? Or be hungry enough for learning. What an ef- what kind of effect must Jesus have had on her to keep her there? Well, then the scene shifts back to Martha, <laughs> who we are told is distracted by her many tasks. Everyone in that time hearing the story would nod with appreciation. They would instinctively grasp the situation, understanding the absolute importance of hospitality in their culture. And uh, I've been to the Middle East a few times, and I don't know any place where people bend over backwards as hard to be hospitable as Middle Easterners. It's really amazing. And not what I expected showing up there as an American. But they do that. They really roll out the red carpet for you if you're their guest. Um, if Martha didn't provide a proper welcome, she'd have brought fame on, uh, fame shame on the whole family. It's a culture of shame and honor, you see. Anthropologists would describe that as the value system, as opposed to our culture, which is a culture of guilt and innocence. Um, That's not how they thought. They thought of things in terms of shame and honor. Um, And this shows up in a whole variety of ways in the Gospels especially. If an honored guest arrived, more dishes would be prepared. Uh, The more honored the guest, the greater number of different dishes would be served. It's a way of honoring the guest and bringing honor to the household. So clearly, Martha had a huge job on her hands. Jesus has arrived with his disciple, and he was about as important as a guest could be. You can imagine all the chaos, everyone scurrying around trying to get things ready. Um, So many last-minute tasks, sort of like the day of a wedding or something. And it's probable that that household, for whatever reason, we're not given the background, was wealthy enough that there are probably plenty of helpers, servants. Remember the alabaster jar of perfume that Mary opened up and poured a year's worth of value on Jesus? Um, That jar of perfume wouldn't just be sitting around everybody's house. So the question is here, what does it mean that Mary is breaking this cultural taboo Well, she's bringing shame on her household, a household that's already odd because it's headed by a woman. What will the neighbors say? What will our extended family do? Will anyone be interested in marrying Mary after she acts like this? Martha is embarrassed about Mary's choice, and she thinks it reflects on her. And so she lashes out stomping into the room and demanding Jesus to do something about Mary's shameful behavior. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me! She's mad at Mary, who should be helping, who should know better than to think she can be a disciple, that she can study the Torah with men. And she's mad at Jesus for not caring about her needs, for not recognizing this breach, for not fixing things. Don't you care? Tell her to help me! Readers of the story would be sympathetic. They'd agree with Martha's outburst. She's right, and surely Jesus will do something about it. And I've often wondered if the visiting disciples were also sympathetic. Maybe relieved at Martha's outburst. Finally, Jesus will set things right and restore order, and then we hear what Jesus says. We're shocked into learning important lessons about being one of his followers. Martha, Martha, You're worried and distracted by many things. There's need of only one thing. Mary's chosen the better part, which will not be taken from her. Worried and distracted. Notice that Jesus points to her distraction. She's focused on the wrong things. He's not challenging her work. He's not challenging her service. He's challenging her focus distracted by many things. Martha's trying for the big banquet, outdoing herself, as if quantity is a measure of love, devotion, even if it turns into resentment. And Martha is blaming the others for her distress. It's their fault she's so distracted. But Jesus says only one thing is needed. Literally one dish. You don't need to make all these different dishes. No need for an elaborate banquet. Martha, a casserole is fine, and anyway, I'd rather have you. Challenges her assessment of Mary's behavior by saying, Mary has chosen the better portion. Again, that's maybe the better dish, the better part of the food, because, um, well, there's a different kind of banquet being served to the disciples already. Dr. Ken Bailey, who spent most of his career uh, serving in the Middle East, um, he's gone on to be with the Lord now. He was the canon theologian of the Diocese of Pittsburgh when I was up there, Uh, gives a free interpretation of what Jesus said but it makes the point. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, said Dr. Bailey. I I understand the entire list. One thing is needed. What is missing is not one more plate of food, but rather for you to understand that I am already providing the meal and your sister has already chosen the best portion. A good student is more important to me than a good meal. I won't allow you to take it away from her. Mary's choice to be a disciple, even if it cost her reputation, which it probably did, was upheld by Jesus. He wouldn't take it away from her. By implication, Jesus is challenging Martha to follow Mary's example and challenging the disciples to welcome Mary into their discipleship. Loving God includes acts of service, of course, but those acts of service are meant to emerge from a life of listening attentively to God and his word, of paying attention to Jesus' teaching and leading. So there you have it, a lesson from Jesus about following him, about being a faithful disciple. And make no mistake, it's not just a lesson for Martha, it's a lesson also for Mary and for the 12 who are in that room with them, and for all of us. So let's grade ourselves. How are we doing? How well do we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind? Is learning from Jesus, from his word and from his words, our deepest and primary agenda? Are we willing to be thought scandalous because we put Jesus first? Do our acts of service flow out of devotion to Jesus and his word? And there's one further challenge that I think arises from this passage and the other passages in the New Testament the Gospels about Mary of Bethany. If none of this has shocked you yet, sermon's not over yet, If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and ask the question, as a young person did, I don't know if you're in Sunday school that day or not, Lisa, when Tony uh, asked the question about uh, Jesus and people having favorites. Um, No reason you'd have to remember it. Come on, it was 30 years plus. (laughs) Uh, But the question came up, and uh, so I, sort of volleyed the ball back over the net, Tony, and said, Tony, don't you have favorite people? And he was like, "Uh, uh, uh, well, actually, yeah. And I said, so does everybody. Jesus was a human. Do you think he didn't have favorite people? Okay, so look at the uh, look at the Gospels. Tell me who you think Jesus' favorite person was. Pretty much everybody in the room agreed that it was probably Peter. Because if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's sure what it looks like. And then if you look at the Gospel of John, who's the disciple that Jesus loved? John! John. You you have to kind of piece it together. You have to do the math to come up with that. But it's true. That is exactly what everybody who studied that Gospel ends up concluding. So if you read John, it's John. If you read the stuff that was inspired by Peter as a source, it was Peter. Um, Maybe everybody felt that way. But if you read all four Gospels with asking that question, the person who unlikely emerges as possibly his best friend is Mary of Bethany. I didn't have that idea cross my mind for the first 30 years I was following Jesus. Never crossed my mind, not for a split second. But then I heard somebody make the case for this. And it's actually pretty powerful when you look at the choices Jesus makes, the choices she makes, and the timeline of what, has gone, what goes on. She isn't mentioned by name that many times. And it's clearly not some kind of, what's the name of the guy who uh, wrote uh, the uh, code book? Uh, Brown, what's his name? Dan Brown. This is not a Dan Brown fantasy about Mary uh, Magdalene and Jesus. This This is not that kind of relationship at all. There is no hint that this is romantic in any way, shape, or form ever in any of the texts about her. But what you do see is you see the story of Lazarus where Jesus waits until Lazarus dies before he goes down to visit uh, this household and he shows up and uh, he already knows that Lazarus is dead before any word comes to him. He gets there and Martha uh, meets him first and says, uh, your friend Lazarus has died and Jesus Uh, basically says, I'm sorry, let's go visit the grave. And then uh, uh, when he's on his way there, eventually Mary catches up to him and she says, your friend Lazarus has died. And do you know what Jesus' response is? It's the only two-word verse in the Bible. Jesus Jesus wept. Why didn't he weep when Martha told him? Why didn't he weep when he knew it when he was still, you know, miles and miles away? It's empathy. It's this heart level connection between Jesus and Mary of Bethany. That's what's going on. And uh, that's not the only place you see something unusual happening there in terms of the the closeness that was there somehow. And I'm convinced it was based in spiritual things, not um, anything that is romantic at all. In the last week of Jesus' life, he goes to Jerusalem, triumphal entry, you know, poems, Hosanna. Uh, and then that week where that leads up to his crucifixion and eventual, eventually to his resurrection. Um, where do Jesus and his disciples stay? Bethany. Bethany. He goes and hangs out with that family. And what he knows is the last week he has on earth. He chooses to be with his heart friends. Jesus is fully human. Sometimes we evangelicals talk about him as though he's only divine. He was fully human. And he wanted to be with his friends when this disaster was coming to meet him. And during that week, and here you have to do the math because she's not named, and there are two incidents that are fairly similar here, but this one happens at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, where Mary comes, opens up this jar of perfume, pours it over his head, pours it over his feet, and wipes his feet off with her hair. This act of extravagant devotion and connection. But I don't think that we get it. You couldn't, I mean, you didn't exactly have hot tubs and hot steaming showers and modern shampoo to get that stuff off of you. For the rest of that week, if Jesus went somewhere and then Mary went there, or vice versa, how would they have smelled Everybody knew something had happened there, and it wasn't, as far as we can tell, explained. (laughs) Jesus was being shocking again and saying, what this woman has done for me will be remembered throughout the whole earth, wherever this gospel is told. So, there's more to say about this, and I don't have very many minutes left to say it. In fact, I probably have minus three. <laughs> Everyone would knew they'd been together in some sense or other, and Jesus is unafraid of being misunderstood, and that's because he's not playing to the audience of the people around him. He's playing to the audience of one. So, the question this raises for us hazardously is, are we playing to the audience of one? Are you? Am I? How about you guys at home? Yeah, I just looked at the camera for the first time. (laughs) I think there are several challenges this puts in front of us, not the least of which is over this ancient divide between men and women, how are we treating and thinking about each other? Are we really willing to try to reach back and look at the question of how our fellowship got ruptured by the fall and asked Jesus to repair that and to try to live into a redeemed relationship with the opposite sex? What does that mean about life in the church? What does it mean about our lives personally? Well, one thing it doesn't mean is that all the relationships with the opposite sex are sexualized. It does not mean that. But, like the uh, generation that Joni Mitchell said tried to get ourselves back to the garden, we can't do it ourselves. It's got to be God doing it. And there are points in history where you can see God at work that way, like in the early years of the Franciscan movement. Until the people in Rome figured out that there were men and women who were actually spiritually together and not doing anything wrong, that they decided, well, we just have to split them up and we'll put the women in a cloister. Yeah, it's a hard thing to tolerate the idea that somehow that we can actually be brothers and sisters. Anyway, I think that's pretty shocking. I think that's enough shock for one morning. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your intention to restore our relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, for doing everything that was necessary for that to come about. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to come to us and give us both the insight and the courage to live your kingdom. Lord help us to know how to do that and show us step by step how that's possible without contamination of any sort. Thank you Lord. That with you all things are impossible, that all things that seem impossible to us are in fact possible. And for showing us signposts pointing that way, help us to be able to read them. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.